Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Brian Alexander. Brian is an internationally known futurist, researcher, writer, speaker, consultant and teacher working in the field of how technology transforms education. He completed his English Language and Literature PhD at the University of Michigan in 1997 with a dissertation on doppelgangers in Romantic Era fiction and poetry. He then taught literature, writing, multimedia and information technology studies. From 2002 to 2014, Brian worked with the National Institute for Technology in Liberal Education which is a not-for-profit working to help small colleges and universities best integrate digital technologies. In 2013, Brian launched a business, Brian Alexander Consulting, and through it, he consults throughout higher education in the United States and abroad. Welcome to FuturePod, Brian. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, Brian, question one, the Brian Alexander story. So I've obviously foreshadowed a little bit of it in the uh, in the intro, but yeah, you know, what is the story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? I think it was through a very, very long detour. When I was a kid, I first stumbled upon Alvin Toffler's Future Shock and mm-hmm. was thrilled by it. And I thought, ha ha, those old people, they have no idea what the future is. <laughs> I also read a lot of science fiction and I was very passionate about it. And so I was, I was always thinking 10, 20, 50 years ahead, wondering about the future. I mean, all kids do, but, but this really, that double shot really supercharged me for it. And then uh, I, I did a long detour through academia, uh, doing uh, history and then English as an undergrad and grad student and then being a prof. Through that course, I got more and more interested in digital technology, like a lot of us. And I did a lot of work on that, how digital technology can be applied to teaching and learning. And when I was working on that full time for the nonprofit you mentioned before, I realized that I ran into a lot of opposition. If I showed up at a campus or at an association or was just talking to people and said, hey, I'm interested in new technologies and how they can improve teaching and learning, I would immediately lose parts of the audience. Yeah. Those who were just technophobic, those who had outsourced thinking about technology, those who just thought that technology wasn't interesting. It was just bugging me, and I was trying to figure out a way to approach that better. And I realized that my well, most of my technology work kept leading into other fields. I was stumbling into the steep analysis without knowing it. I was getting interested in, in the finances of higher education and state funding and issues of geopolitics, issues of envir- the environment and society. And then I just kind of had this realization, what I'm really doing is the future of education. So I, I dove into future studies again, and it was like, you know, coming home. This all just felt wonderful and exhilarating. Uh, threw myself into the various methods, some of which have been practicing halfway without even being fully aware of it. <laughs> and uh, turned this around and deployed it. And it was just a huge hit. Suddenly, people who call themselves Luddites would be really keen on talking about the future of education, including technology. It just, it just worked. It was a kind of royal road forward for me. 
And that's that's really what I've been doing since for the past decade. Um, mostly I work in the U.S., working with colleges and universities, along with companies, nonprofits, and governments. But I also work uh, in Australia, in East Asia, and in Europe. So when you did your second dive back into futures, who were the people that helped you through that process, might have taught you, might have supported you, that kind of thing? I don't think I was mentored by anybody at that stage. Uh, I think I was too busy and pursuing my own idiosyncratic path. I mean, there are people whose work really appealed to me and spoke to me, but I didn't I didn't converse with until I got much further into the field. So, you know, thinking about WAC and scenarios, thinking about Jim Dater and his four archetypes, you know, thinking of Peter Bishop, uh, who I think was the first one I really started working with and talking to. But yeah, it was it was more just the, uh, and, and then the kind of like the ghost of Toffler, you know, um, over this all. And, and even the ghosts of people like, you know, Herman Kahn, just giving us tools for thinking about the future in, in a way that was more rigorous. At the same time, I just never give up on science fiction, you know, never stop. And, and here you and I are, you know, talking to each other through a global spending network mediated by computers with some input from artificial intelligence. I mean, you know, science fiction, you can't think about the 21st century present without thinking of science fiction, much less the future. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's certainly, uh, you know, when I did the interview with uh, Tom Lombardo, again, um, mm. uh, Tom makes a point that science fiction is a kind of is a kind of meta language mm-hmm. in the future's domain. However, if you listen to Riel Miller's comments, he go, but really science fiction can offer a really narrow set of ideas about the future. Yeah, often can be just, you know, solely dystopian if you're reading, if you read certain science fictions and well, I, even science fiction has to has yeah. to get broader and deeper. Well, I think I think that's true of the of an individual text much as it is true when you do environmental scanning or trends analysis. I mean, if I only read, you know, proceedings of IEEE, I'm only going to get this slice of technology futures. If I'm yep. looking at economics and I only read proceedings from, you know, the World Bank, I'm only going to get that slice. And the same is true. You you have to you have to have a, a diverse set of inputs. And the same is true. I mean, science fiction is so broad. I mean, you have utopia, you have dystopia, you have all kinds of nations represented. So you have to really have a. I think a key thing about being a futurist, even if your ultimate focus of work is quite narrow, you need to have a very broad input. You know, the the end of the funnel could be narrow, but the opening has to be pretty wide. Yes. It sounds like for you that you kind of really started your business, so to speak, and, and just kind of landed on your feet. Was that was that kind of the case? Yeah. There's a, a little U.S. side of this, which is that for more than a decade, I worked with a nonprofit that worked with a, a small slice of American higher education. It worked with about maybe 5 to 7% of American colleges and universities. And it was a cohesive group, a wonderful group, the liberal arts college model, which is a kind of uniquely American thing. But while I was doing that work, I kept getting more and more requests from other sectors in higher education or from state universities, which of course you're very familiar with in, in Australia, research universities, community colleges, and I and military academies, and and I, I gradually broadened my focus, and then I launched my business to have that full range of higher education. And I haven't looked back since. I, I still continue to work across higher education. I met you through the Association of Professional Futurists, so you actually then obviously got involved with the with the actual profession itself. Yeah, I couldn't hold back. You know, I had to uh, had to formalize it, and that was great. I mean, it's it's just it's just wonderful to connect with uh, 
some of the great giants in the field, like, you know, Peter Bishop and Jim Dater that I mentioned before. It's great to run into people just coming out of a master's program or just considering this for the first time. It's great, too, to talk to people across industries, you know, people who work in packaging or the military or some other business or in the nonprofit space, as well as folks from around the world, you know, talking, you know, lunatic countries like, say, Australia or, uh, <laughs> or you know, South Africa, people across Europe and, and so on. So it's I, I'm I mean, I'm on the board. I, I'm clearly biased, but I've, I've come to that bias uh, through with my eyes open. I, I think uh, I think it's really great to have that professional matrix. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's our question too, Brian. The one where I encourage the guests to talk about you know, a method or a tool or, or something they use that is central to their practice and to explain to the listeners both the tool, I mean at a level of, you know, what is the tool, but also how they use it and what the challenges or what the opportunities are to how others might use it. So what do you want to talk about? I use a bunch of methods. I mean, I've used uh, prediction markets. I've, I've used and I still use scenario modeling. But the one I want to talk about today was uh, trends analysis. Yep. I came to this in part because futures work maybe particular in academia, but also elsewhere has a reputation an ill-deserved reputation for being kind of uh, too speculative or for being ungrounded. <laughs> you know, what happens if the, one of my podcasts I used to listen to, I said, you know, what happens if the uh, moon is made of cheese kind of thing? Yep. And so I need to counter that. What I've been doing is for a decade now, I've been carefully monitoring uh, a whole series of trend lines, about 90 of them, um, that can and so far have had an impact in reshaping higher education. And so every month I publish, uh, not a newsletter, really a trends report, uh, where I summarize the most recent uh, examples of these. And every single one of them is backed up by evidence. Right. I mean, every one has, you know, is, is linked and referenced to a news report, journal article, video, that kind of thing. And I've been tracking these, you know, month after month for a decade now. So I can get a sense of some of the curves of these trends over time, which are building, which are receding. You know, and it's it's fascinating to see because I I can look at the ones that receded, and that have left all public conversation, and I file those away. And say, all right, all right, these these may come back. I mean, you think, for example, about the to pick an earlier example, virtual reality, which had a huge boom in the nineteen nineties, then a complete bust, and now is in its second phase. So I'm I'm often looking for those second phases. Hmm. But you know, I can I can quantify these. I can do some first order approximations of extrapolation, and I can use these as well to build out scenarios. So you know, taking a look at automation in higher education, or looking at uh, trends in labor market, um, and see how these can impact things. So I I mean, are you suggesting that as a professional practitioner, it it actually is advantageous to take the time and the structure to actually pick a series of of uh, things that you wish to stay on top of and follow through time to both both build your knowledge and also have information to present to potential clients about the future. Yes, very much so. In fact, I, I, I wish you'd said that instead of me because that was much more elegant. It's partly as a way of, you know, there's a rhetoric here of, of convincing people, hey, this is serious. But it's also a service because very, very few people actually do this 
Uh, I mean, journalism, for example, is focused on that knife edge of the present. And uh, most people don't go into the archives, for example. You know, historians, of course, have a longer focus into the past. And so to be able to present this, this is actually a good. I have some evidence for that. Uh, when I began this, it was during the last couple of years I was working for that nonprofit. And we ended up giving that report to members as a benefit. And people valued it accordingly. Uh, and a few years ago, after I, I took the report with me when I started my own business, I started, I initially gave it away for free, and then I turned it to a subscription basis, and hundreds of people actually pay for the privilege. So there's a, right. you know, there's there's hard proof that uh, this can actually be a valued product by itself. And what what products do you use to actually uh, keep the information and present the information? Well, the output is usually a PDF. It's monthly. It's roughly about 20 pages, about 100 footnotes. Uh, it's written very telegraphically, uh, very clearly, with no jargon. Every acronym is explained ahead of time. Uh, it's broken down into a trends map, so you can go through and you know, here are all the uh, non-technological forces acting on the higher education. Here are the changes in, edu- in technology. Here are the, here's the intersection of education and technology. Here's the higher education bubble or crisis and so on. I, I, can, I can break those down further if you like, but those are all accessible. So it's, it's different than looking at a clipping service, for example. Yeah, so it's actually, it's actually a structured report in a particular domain, being higher education, but also taking a, I'm a Richard Slaughter, a Swinburne integral futurist. Yeah, we didn't push back on it, but we we did note that a lot of trend work and a lot of yeah futures work tended to be located in the external world, and really we didn't appear to do a lot of trend analysis on on the kind of interior processes of culture and language and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that goes back to the funnel continually. I mean, this is a monthly product, so every month, I every day literally every day, I uh, fire up the research engine and uh, I sift for signals uh, about each of the trends. And I do that partly through uh, a very complex set of RSS feeds. Uh, I do it through some paid subscriptions. I do it through podcasts because podcasts are clearly <laughs> awesome. Yes. I do it as well through, uh, um, through Twitter and to a lesser extent LinkedIn. But then the other thing I do, and this is apparently unusual, is that I push all these back out into the world. So when I find a story, I retweet it uh, or I push it out through LinkedIn or through Facebook and and ask for feedback. I mean, is this real? Is this a serious story? And uh, I have a whole spreadsheet of individuals with individual expertise areas, and I will just ping them directly and say, hey, Fred, you know, what do you think about this? You're interested in AI. What do you think about that? And this this is just fantastic. I mean, this makes my work much sharper. Uh, because people can, you know, see through hype. They can offer correctives, reality checks. Uh, their affirmations count for a lot. Um, so, I mean, that whole social process is—it's a kind of crowdsourced uh, technique, uh, which I'm very, very grateful for. And I, I, I thank people. The uh, beginning of every uh, report has uh, name checks people who have volunteered stories for me, which is great. But it's 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 kind of like just being in a big think tank yeah. and uh, walking down the hall and saying, "Hey." So, is this legit? What do you think? Uh, so, I think that's that's a lot of fun. Yes, it's great to be a trend, or you know, to collect trends. But of course, the step before trends are collected, of course, is scanning. Which and the notion that, again, if you're going to work as a professional in the field, you have to be scanning in a disciplined, routine, 
uh-huh. repeated process time after time as part of your core practice? Yes, exactly. Well said. Well said. And you can't do it by yourself, can you? And it's it it's actually better if you if you scan with other people. Well, I, I'm I've uh, I've done some work in trying to map out my blind spots and my weaknesses. Um, for example, in uh, American higher education, uh, college sports is a big deal. I'm clueless about it. I've tried, and I really can't grasp. I mean, I've studied the sociology and the history of it, but I don't really have an intuitive grasp. So I have a small cadre of people who will bring me important stories that I would otherwise have missed and Excellent. to whom I can go and say, does this, what? explain this to me. And I've, I've actually publicized how I, I grossly misforecast one aspect of uh, college higher, college sports in the uh, after the financial crash of 2008. Um, it's very comical how far off I was. So it's important for me to be aware of those things. I need to try and work on them to, and, and to get information. In the U.S. Uh, for the past four years, uh, we've had an incredibly intense political divide that is really soaked into just about everything in the U.S. So it's very important for me to read across that divide uh, and to get sources for everything. I mean, for uh, economics. So I'll, I'll, you know, pick up uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the World Bank, uh, International Money Fund, as well as uh, left-wing sources, uh, just to try to get, you know, try not to fall into the trap, so that I might miss something if I just read too carefully on one partisan side. It's fun. It's hard work, and it's. I mean, I think it's. I think it's what we do, and we encourage and try to show people how to do themselves. Yeah, I do that in my in my classes. In fact, uh, in a few weeks, I start up my future of higher education class again at Georgetown, and I've got a new set of readings for them that I want to try out, and uh, a couple of new exercises I want to see what they do with. But that's always fun. Excellent. Thanks, Brian. question the one where i ask you to talk about how do you make sense of the emerging futures around you and whose future are you really focused on when you think about your future is it yours personal is it family is it the yeah. is it the state you're in the nation you're in or the planet you're on as a person how do you sense and sense make the emerging future i think my you know, you mentioned before wanting to think about uh, interior processes and and my interior processes are actually very grandiose. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who learns uh, from the big picture down. Uh, I, I don't start with details usually. So I, I tend to think about the planet. Uh, and that, that leads me into two major, major topics. I mean, one is climate change and uh, one is globalization. And so I've, my next book that I've been working on um, is actually about higher education and climate change, uh, looking at the next 75 to 80 years. Uh, which is uh, a little daunting, <laughs> as is the topic. But that's beyond higher education's role. I have to not just process and work with all the scientific data, all the models, the projections, all this stuff. Not only the politics of, of the data, you know, climate change denial and all of that. You know, I'm talking to someone in Australia. I know you guys are fully engaged in that debate. But, the, uh, but also just to think about how we respond to it. Bruno Latour, the philosopher of science, was recommending that we think of COVID-19 as a kind of test run for how we respond to uh, global climate change. And it's not a really good test run. Um, I mean, so far we're, we're or, or it's a very revelatory one. We're, 
we're getting lots of feedback and and we're going to have lots of areas that if we want to improve we can true 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 it's like uh you know when your uh, when your rocket launches the first time and it bursts into flame, you, know, you can you can look at the scattered pieces and say, oh, all right, all right, I can see where the stress point was. Right Here, here's where here's where the the temperature was the highest. Yeah, it's it's quite true. And so I, I think about things like this, um, you know, how we politically respond because right now we don't have a coherent anything at the global level for responding to climate change. So you know, do we have do we continue with this kind of mix of individual nation states doing their things lightly coordinated by very, very uh, gentle uh, treaties like the Paris Accord? Um, and alongside that, we have the uh, multinational corporations, which are hugely powerful, doing their own thing as well. Do we do that or do we actually create some kind of planetary system, You know, maybe a mobilized UN or a successor to the United Nations in order to try to basically redesign much of human civilization and that's a that's a pretty um, you know it's a vast task and that's one which we could see there's a an interesting uh, book from a couple of political scientists called climate leviathan uh, which thinks that uh, we may also see uh, the rise of individual nations that act uh, to try to avoid dealing with climate change through a combination of uh, nationalism and some weird mix of science denial. Uh, so we could see that as well. And of course, we can mm. need nations that are gleefully engaged on this right now. So I, I'm, I'm, that struggle is one that I'm, I'm very tending to. The globalization one is interesting. I mean, we've had, you know, we've been pretty enthusiastic proponents of globalization for the past, well, definitely past 40 years uh, after the fall of the Eastern Bloc and uh, the uh, introduction of China into the uh, New World Trade Order. Um, and so globalization has been proceeding at pace, especially the level of finance flows. But, you know, over the past five years, we've had rising objections to it. In fact, you can go back 20 years if you want to the J18 movement, but we've had that occurring from the left and the right. So, you know, you could have people as disparate as, say, in the U.S., Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, each criticizing outsourcing of factories from the U.S., but from diametrically opposed uh, political reasons. And, and you can see this, of course, in everything from uh, some of the motivations behind Brexit in the United Kingdom to some of the uh, religious nationalism of Modi in India to the ditto in uh, Turkey under Erdogan. So it's it's interesting to see. You know, one of the things I'm trying to grapple with is are, are we actually witnessing a kind of sunsetting of uh, globalization in favor of new nationalism? Or is this a blip? Is this kind of last hurrah for a generation on its way out, uh, after which we will coalesce and continue our direction of being ever more uh, globally integrated? Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating one because, of course, history will tell you that you know we've been globalizing since we walked out of Africa. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yet we've also had points in history where the commercial aspect of globalism has run ahead of the political process. And I'm thinking of the early mercantile companies in Europe. Oh, sure. I'm thinking about the uh, Hanseatic League, which managed to knit together. I even think the notion of where there's a political process that's globalization mm -hmm. and there's a and there's a mercantile process and of course there is the third one which again is another old process which is the human aspect of globalization through migration uh, and refugee behavior so that last one is tricky right now i mean we're we we may just be stumbling into a vast era of migration mm. thanks to climate change um you know especially you look at the uh 
at the regions that are most due to be scorched by rising heat. So you're thinking of sub, uh, everything around the Sahara, for example, or parts of Saudi Arabia or Central Asia, as well as those that are um, uh, facing the possibility of being underwater, which is you know the majority of <laughs> human settlement uh, along coastlines. Um, so how we you know how we anticipate this? Very few people are actually talking about this as a migration crisis. Mm. Um, it's but it's an interesting. When you said human, I thought you were going to go in a completely different direction. I, I thought you were going to talk about how we gleefully globalize by culture. How we we love passing clothing, food, music, fiction across national That's, borders. Yep. It's one of the just exciting things. Uh, you know, Singapore, I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of visiting. It's this fantastic, you know, fusion of all of these different cultures, you know, Indian, Chinese, you know, British, uh, and then a whole bunch of others that are swirling in there. And that, it's just, you know, you, you think about the wonderful uh, fusion cuisines, like, you know, Vietnamese food with that uh, combination of French and Southeast Asian mm. cooking. And we, whenever I travel abroad, one of the things that always fascinates me is just how I see more signs of fans of American sports than I do in the United States. You know, people with uh, hats and T-shirts. Um, and of course, maybe alas, seeing lots of Hollywood um, uh, abroad. Um, but also, you know, seeing Bollywood all over the world. Well, that's it. I mean, we're now seeing Korean pop music. You've now got Bollywood. And um, yeah. and again, and, and, and of course, the other thing, of course, is that which podcasting is a small part of is the notion of the individual as product creator. Yes. And there are people around the world producing content, both in a video, digital, audio, music, that aren't part of any organisational or, or cultural process. I mean, it, it is fascinating. I, you know, one of the things I think about without necessarily knowing but I marvel at is, is how the, the generations who are brought up with fusion culture just treat culture as a as a resource set. They don't so much say I'm of this culture. They are, they absolutely love the aspect that they actually create their culture out of whatever they want from anywhere else in the world. Well, think about um, you know the strange struggle between that that we saw between fans of Korean pop music and supporters of Donald Trump fought yep. over Twitter. Yep, which is yep. which is a, a science fiction <laughs> sentence if I've ever heard. Of. Uh, one of my one of my favorite um, music podcasts is produced by a uh, Dutchman who is now living in Cyprus. His his fan base is completely transnational. You know, it's just it's all over the world, and the music that he uh, curates, uh, which is mostly space music, is um, also completely transnational. So you know, you you wonder you know, what which of these forces we're going to see that become new cultures of hmm. themselves. You know, meme culture, for example, is that a is that a thing or is it too big to be a thing? There's another side to it too, which again, I'm always reminded of particularly the work of a guy like Zygmunt Bauman who talked about liquid modernity. And mm. what Bauman talked about, of course, was the burden that came with this, with this flexibility, with this amorphous you know, lack of anything. As Bauman said, it's everybody's responsibility to create their identity. And that is also heavy work. It is, it is, but it's all. It, it can be, and you think about the you think about the challenges. I mean, this is where you know, twenty years ago, we were look. A lot of us were looking at different forms of conservative religion, uh, and one of the ways of explaining them was that they were threatened by modernity. And there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, I remember driving across Morocco and looking at ads, 
And when I was in uh, Casablanca, the ads looked like, you know, the ads you would see, say, in France or Spain. You know, you'd see models with a mix of clothing and skin. And the further I went into the interior, the, the less and less skin appeared uh, until these were fully clothed models that would have uh, maybe pleased a Victorian. You know, it was, uh, you know, how do you, how do you cope with that when you, when you see your culture being undermined and threatened from without? I mean, that's, and there are a lot of different ways to respond. There's, there's also that, that rootless cosmopolitanism, which for some is, is freeing, uh, or for some is a condition of work. For example, if we look at high net worth individuals who maintain multiple residences in global cities like Tokyo, Hong Kong, London, Paris, New York, you know, that's, that seems to work for them. But, you know, do you, is there a humid need to settle on that, uh, to settle on some kind of region or nationality or language uh, as your grounding? So it's, it's interesting to think about the 21st century, the rest of it, and think, how, how are we going to do this? Is human actually an identity that we can mm. get behind? I mean, going back to science fiction, that's, you know, we've always thought that in science fiction that was yeah. possible. You know, do we have, um, you know, is that enough or is that just too abstract for us to be grounded in? We're living in the experiment. We are indeed. We are indeed. Thanks, Brian. Question four, the one of how do you explain what you do when you are talking to someone who necessarily doesn't understand what it is you do? Well, people usually ask me if I predict the future. And so, you know, it's the usual routine to say, no, we don't use the P word. We do we use the F word. We do forecasts. I explain that we, I help my clients, my audiences, anyone around me think more creatively, more effectively, and more strategically about the future. And usually that gives people something to chew on. And they say, well, all right, what does that mean? All right, I'll point out, you know, we have, like a lot of mammals, we tend to think of the future as a continuation of the present. The British novelist John Lancaster says, there's this quote attributed to Napoleon, which is, if you want to understand a man, think of the world that he inhabited when he was 20 years old, and then you've got him. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that. Explains my weird musical taste, for example. In, in many ways, you have to try to um, coax people out of that position, out of that fixity, and into the openness of possibility. And, and I think almost everybody gets that. You know, they, they just easily, they think about their, what they've experienced in their lives or, you know, this time period, which for some people experiences a great deal of fluctuation and chaos. Uh, uh, I've seen some futurists who say that the VUCA acronym is now outmoded. You know, that's not strong enough to describe what we're living through. So people, oh, okay, this this makes sense. I, I can understand this. So that, that's how I usually explain it. Every so often, if I want to impress them, I'll mention one long shot call I made that has has scared some people in higher education. My my most recent book, Academia Next, I have this opening chapter where I try to get people introduced to the idea of, of futures work. I'm assuming the audiences are people in academia or around academia. So explain scenarios and explain how to think about the future in different ways. It's kind of intro to futuring. And at one point, I said, you know, you want to think about big changes that can have elaborate ripple effects. So, for example, what if a pandemic strikes the world? You know, a pandemic, say the scale of the, you know, 1918 great influenza, you know, how would that change? And I run down the changes, you know, it's, uh, you know, I talk about athletics, I talk about online classes. People now call this the notorious page 23 because we have 
I wrote this a few years ago. And, you know, if, if you're in the futures world, you know, this is no wild call because everyone's been, we've been talking about this forever, right? But, uh, but outside the futures world, this looks like sorcery. So I'll point this out and say, hey, you know, I wish I'd gotten something better, right? But this is, but this is a, this is an intellectual tool. This is an exercise that people go through to help prepare them for when this happened. I'm going to ask you this one because it is coming up. When something like the influenza, COVID, which we have been talking about almost every scenario, every workshop for the last twenty-five years, would have would have had a wild card in there about a very, very contagious virus. I'm, I'm going to say that we have been unsuccessful in getting people to to actually give it serious thought and to plan for. So have you got thoughts on what that's about? In other words, we yes, we included it. Yes, we talked about it. But I'm going to say, really, nobody listened to us to the point where they're prepared to do anything. Well, I, I think part of it was, it's a bit like the matrix. You, you have to experience it. You can't just be told about it. So you look at a whole bunch of countries north of you that actually reacted promptly. Yes. And these are the ones that went through SARS or through MERS. Canada, north of me, you know, they did they did this very, very smartly, but they were terrified of SARS. I think that's part of it. And the countries that weren't fully used to this, I'm thinking of uh, Brazil and India to pick two. Uh, and also thinking about Italy, you know, thinking about Russia, and of course the United States. Uh, these are countries that haven't experienced this kind of uh, pandemic. And so... I think it's off to one side. I think the other thing is, it reminds me of why no one likes talking mm. about demographics. I mean, demographics for me is just one of the great reliable right. tools and futurist tool set. And people hate talking about demographics. And when you ask them about it, their notions of demographics are usually laughably wrong, especially given you know, the huge transition we're living through right now. But I, I think it's because when you talk about pandemics or when you talk about demographics, you're talking about intimate bodily functions. Americans, we've got that great Puritan heritage, so we're terrified of this. But I, I think it's true for a lot of people. They find that intrusive and um, and they don't like yes, talking right. about it. They'd rather outsource that thought to professionals or to religious authorities or whomever. And I, I think the other problem, and this is this is where it gets really difficult, is that it's a complex problem at a huge scale. You know, so Hubei province locks down around Wuhan. And they take care of it. And we can we can comprehend that. I mean, that's that's pretty easily understood. You know, one province, one state, basically. Okay, we can see that. Now you talk about it leaping across the world and then into huge populations and incredibly diverse ones. And then it, it ramifies and ramifies. You know, what kind of mutations are we talking about? What are the different research findings about this and so on? And then it plugs into just about every aspect of life, everything from you know, popular culture around sports and celebrity to politics to the culture around science. And now in the in the U.S., we've had weird problems with this. I mean, one weird problem is we haven't really had much of a national health strategy ever, and that's a problem. We also don't have a national health care system, which is a different thing. Um, so that's another problem. And so we've, we've kind of avoided thinking about those issues and we've been blessed. We really haven't had, uh, you know, this serious, um, crisis arguably for a century. And so we've just kind of escaped away from it. I, I think, I think we're learning fast and I think the next one will be, I hope better prepared, but I, I do think it's, it's, that's, that's a combination of, of intimacy and complexity, which makes the pandemic really challenging to imagine. Thanks, Brian.
Okay, I'm not going to miss the chance for the last question. I'm going to ask you the question rather than leave it for you to suggest a topic. The future of higher education, I think I said to you as part of the introduction, you must have been talking about this set of circumstances for for near on 20 years and suddenly people from people not paying serious attention to it in a matter of weeks, there was a worldwide pivot to working with education in a way that you would said is probably coming. So what are things you want to talk to the listeners about, about this whole notion of the future of education, given given this world that's emerging? I think there's, I mean, I've sketched out over the past 20 years, a pretty detailed analysis of where I thought higher education was headed. Uh, the trends I mentioned before play a big role in driving a lot of that change. For example, the um, the demographic transition that we're living through, that is, whenever a society goes through modernity, they basically stop having so many children and they start living a lot longer. Uh, and this has happened, I mean, the only two exceptions I'm aware of are parts of the Orthodox community in Israel and parts of the Mormon community in Utah and the United States. Other than that, it's, a, it's an almost iron law. And it's, it's, it's so, so striking. And we really, I don't think anybody is really besides a few experts, has really thought this through very seriously. Uh, a few books I've read have talked about the idea of, for example, the geriatric piece, where if you just don't don't have enough young teenage men to uh, throw into battle, you mm. might be less likely to go to war, for example. You know, I, I don't think yeah, I thought this through. But when it comes to education, you know, we often think about um, you know, primary and secondary schooling uh, as, as the you know, linchpin of it, and we think of post-secondary. And we often think about that as a certain age range from maybe age six to about age 23 or so. And now we have to change that up because we're going to have fewer and fewer kids going through that system. And if we're living longer and longer than uh, COVID aside for right now, then uh, that means more and more opportunities for uh, teaching and learning. Do we have to colleges and universities start putting out more and more programs aimed at uh, pensioners and retirees and senior citizens? Do we take the idea of lifelong learning much more seriously? Uh, and it's it's not easy to do that. Uh, you have to really pivot a lot of your curriculum, a lot of your pedagogy, and you also to think carefully about the audiences and, and what they need. A friend of mine in uh, Massachusetts teaches a uh, class completely online, and the median age of the student is 73. And he said he's had to go through a lot of configurations and design to make this work, which makes sense. Different populations, different needs. Uh, so I think that's one force that we're seeing. And COVID hits all those and kind of pours fire, pours fuel on them. It sets it on fire. And we've had uh, a lot of nations that have had struggles with trying to fund public higher education, state-sponsored higher education. Uh, now we're going to be faced with the problem of having less money to spend uh, and trying to uh, deal with higher costs for higher education. Because now if you're going to you know, take your university and uh, you're going to open it up for face-to-face instruction, you have to um, do all kinds of measures from you know, plastic shields for faculty and staff to PPE equipment for everybody to medical checks and medical tests and all this other stuff, which adds up and costs money. If you're going to move completely online, you also have to spend money on this. Everything from hardware and software to lots of training and redesign for faculty and classes. Uh, so I, I think one of the great worries for me is that I, I think we'll have casualties in this transition. I think some programs, some populations, some institutions are not going to make it. And they'll either close or be absorbed. 
by other institutions. And on the positive side, uh, one of the things that I, I find, there's got to be a word for this, and I, I can't think of one, Peter. Um, I, I remember when, when podcasting started off in 2004, uh, you had all these early podcasters who said, we can do this great thing. We can tell stories with sound. <laughs> and, and all these old radio guys were like, yeah, I've heard of that. And, and so now in the year 2020, I'm hearing these faculty say, well, gosh, how do I connect with students online? You know, how do I make a meet? And he said, well, we have 50 years of research and experience to draw on, right? We have decades of material. I'm glad you're up, you're catching up to us now. And, and I think that's terrific. There's a, there's a whole body of professionals around the world, call them instructional designers, academic technologists, educational technologists, the people who that's, that's their job is to figure out how to make the digital environment most effective for teaching and learning. And now they are, they've moved to the center spot. They have no major publicity. They don't have great uh, uh, compensation, but they are they are crucial to what we're doing. Uh, and now faculty have to rethink what they're doing. And I, I think that's beneficial. You are having to rethink something in order to do it better. That's a great process. And in the springtime, in March and April, when we rapidly moved online, we didn't have time to do it. But now we've had months. And this fall, and looking ahead, September through December, we'll have more months to try these things out and see what works. How can you use video versus audio versus text? How can you use games? What kind of proportion of synchronous versus asynchronous teaching should you do? So yeah, these, these are the things that I and others have been talking about, and now they've just suddenly raced forward into the, into the spotlight, and it's about time. True. I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, I had a short you know, 15 year experience of the higher education system in Australia. But one of the things that happened in that time was the universities pivoted very, very quickly into becoming you know, really commercial ventures that sold education as a, as a product to a global audience. And increasingly, the emphasis I saw move from the focus on the academy as the university to the to the situation where most people who worked at a university were not actually directly engaged with education. They were engaged with both identifying students, bringing them to Australia or bringing products to them. This is called various things from the bringing professional services into universities, um, the notion of the managerial university. Mm -hmm. And it always struck me that that model, which was all about, well, this is how you make money and this is how governments fund the university system by actually getting out there and actually, you know, generating revenue from other sources. I wonder whether universities are going to continue to be the places that people learn from, the notion of, you know, I trust the university plus I get the credential from the university, or are we going to see the other side of this, which is really the democratisation of people simply saying, I don't actually need to go to an official institution to actually learn stuff. Well, we might. I, I can walk this back through a few steps of what you said. I mean, this is an audio medium, so you can't see me nodding vigorously at every other sentence. I mean, one possibility is that we have the – well, one reality is that we now have the, the best time in human history for a self-driven learner, an autodictat, to learn. I mean, we have access to so much material, so many resources, as well as so many experts. I mean, if you want to teach yourself Spanish or calculus, this is just the golden age. And I don't think we really appreciate that enough. Thing is, most people are not self-taught uh, and they struggle with it. And we also have certain political or social 
requirements for education. We, we, you know, we want a certain amount of literacy. We want a certain amount of civics. We want a certain amount of science education and so on. And so that, that's really where we surface all these institutions from primary schools to graduate universities. And they really, I think they can still be the homes for all these resources, but they can be open to everybody. They can be much more democratic. I mean, I, I publish my syllabi for the whole world to see. I share my presentations on the open web for anybody who's curious. It might be nobody, but it, I can, I do get feedback and hopefully that can be useful for other people. So it may be that some you know, 18 year old in Madagascar is thinking about, say, how to use technology and learning. And she finds one of my presentations and gets interested or finds something useful. I mean, that's great. You know, the trick is, is to convince all these institutions that this is a good thing. And it's not easy because this goes back to your, your previous point. I, I think underlining the managerial university are a couple of forces. And uh, one of them is, for lack of a better word, neoliberalism. I mean, if, if you want to just talk about the post-1990 global economic mentality, you know, we've, we, we're, we're kind of hedging around these different combinations of mixed economies. But a key thing has been unwinding as much of state programming as possible and trying to unleash the private sector to take that up. And you think about British Rail being privatized in the UK, for example, or different attempts to uh, in the US to attach pension funds to the stock market. I mean, that, that sense of privatization is, is, is rampant. And what happened to the former Soviet Union, uh, for example, now 15 countries is an example of that. And so we, we really want to have the consensus, which is now being phrased, is we want to have that kind of privatized world. All right. So if we have that in higher education, that means that universities and colleges have to act like not partly like entrepreneurs, but also like nonprofits. You know, if you if you have a nonprofits devoted to say water rights in Central Africa, you still have to get funding. So you've got to you know move for grants. You've got to apply for donors. You've got to try to you know get a wonderful state support. I mean, you know that. Most of higher education worldwide is nonprofit, and so we're, we're in the same boat. We have to figure out, and we do the same thing. You know, we, we look for donors, we look for grants, and then we come up with other fees. Uh, so, you know, nonprofits around the world charge fees for all kinds of services, and so higher education is in much the same way. Now, the, the other driver behind that is the professionalization of the non-faculty parts of the academy. And, and this is controversial, uh, but you think about all kinds of fields. You think about libraries, for example, which uh, over the past century got more and more credentialed. Uh, you can think about information technology, which was infinitesimal in the 1970s, but obviously has expanded in size. Uh, but other fields, too. Enrollment management. I'm not sure if you use the same phrase in Australia, um, but you know, basically how to best recruit and maintain uh, students. That's the kind of thing where you actually you kind of want someone who's professional at that. You want that to be as best. You want that to be the highest quality as you can, and so on. And so you get professional field after professional field after professional field, which then drives up costs because professions are expensive, uh, and which then leads to a greater demand for entrepreneurial, you know, uh, fee-seeking of behavior. But you also have, uh, you know, this this non-faculty side of the university becomes self-sustaining and uh, can be aggrandizing and uh, it can be uh, as well cynical uh, in its pursuit of itself. So we get what some call deans and deanlets, uh, the growth of uh, academic administration that goes beyond what's needed. Uh, and this, I find, varies from campus to campus, institution to institution. You know, do you need a VP for this? Do you need a dean for that? Do you need an associate for this? And so on. 
but you've accurately described where we've ended up for those things. One more thing I, I wanted to plug in if I could, and this is going to be my, my, my one act of uh, American centrism in this, pro in this program. I, I think the missing term in a lot of the way we look at the future of higher education is the student who should be central to what we do. And in the United States, we kind of unusually in the world, we have uh, an unusually intense focus on students. Those that live on campus, we give uh, you know, an unusually high amount of attention to, and we invent a lot of programs for them. But one of, the, one of the interesting things is we give students some role in trying to shape their education, everything from participating in active discussions in class to uh, going on internships to helping advise universities on what they do. I, I think right now we need to really cling to our students as much as possible. We need to ask them for their stories and listen to what they want to accomplish. You know, I mentioned that Napoleon quote about a person when they're 20. Well, these students are coming up to about 20 right now, and this is the world for them. And I, I want to make sure that they have a powerful voice in shaping what's happening. And I, I, I hope the rest of the world can catch on to this and really bring students into our councils. I, I think that's the lowercase d, the most democratic thing we can do. And I think it's also the most forward-looking thing we can do. Thanks, Brian. It's been great to for you to take some time out and talk to the FuturePod community. Thanks very much. Peter, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your program, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. These are good questions and a good conversation. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.